Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture, I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Numbers. The book of Numbers is going to tell us that the Israelites are wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And you're going to see some reduplication, some things that we saw in Exodus, you're also going to see in Numbers. There's going to be some overlap, some of the same stories. We're also going to see some new stories. We're going to get into the stories of the quail that the Israelites eat. We're going to talk about the fiery serpents upon the land that bite and kill many of the Israelites. And then we'll see the solution that Moses brings where he makes a brass serpent that will cure them if they look at it. That's all they have to do. We'll even see an interesting story about this guy by the name of Og. He's a king and he's a giant. And of course, we'll get into the story of Balaam and the talking donkey. You can't do numbers without doing that. Now, The question often rises, why are the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years? I mean, even on foot, it would not take 40 years to travel from Sinai to Israel. In fact, it might only take about 129 hours to get there if you walk. And so a 40-year travel to get to the land of Canaan seems kind of excessive. The book of Numbers covers this. It talks about how long the children of Israel had to stay there to learn the spiritual lessons that they needed to learn. And a big part of that reason is because of their murmuring in the 14th chapter. They essentially say that they wish they would have died in the wilderness. And so the Lord's response is going to be, well, if that's what you want, then that's what you'll get. And so the generation that murmurs gets to stay in the wilderness and have their wish fulfilled to die in the wilderness. And their children are the ones who get to go into the land of Canaan under the direction of Joshua. By the way, Deuteronomy, which we're going to cover next week, that's about a speech that Moses gives at the end of the Exodus, when they're on the east side of the Jordan River about to cross over and come into the land of Canaan. Later, after we cover Deuteronomy, we'll get into the book of Joshua, and that's the story of when the Israelites actually come into the promised land. So before we get into it, I want to ask you, Bryce, what would you say is the overall theme of the book of Numbers? So big picture here, we're still in the desert. The beauty of the Old Testament is we get to see the covenant in different scenarios that may apply to different times of our lives. And here we get to see the covenant in the desert. It's like Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. It's those moments of our life where we're suffering, where we're hurting. And how do you live the covenant in the desert? And so the great message is that how you respond to the trials of the desert will shape your character. Now, back in our podcast on Exodus 14 through 17, as we went into the desert, crossing the Red Sea and coming into the desert, we laid out a major theme, and that was don't be like Laman. There is a tremendous connection between the exodus of Moses and the Israelites from Egypt and the exodus of Nephi and Lehi from Jerusalem. And what we looked at in that podcast was the tendency of laymen after every trial, they go through seven trials in First Nephi that I count, and each time laymen murmurs. He always felt wronged. And when you feel wronged, you get wroth. 
And when you get wrath, you turn against God or turn against whoever is wronging you. And that's how Laman and the children of Israel respond. You're going to see that again this week. Let me just share a couple of those moments. In chapter 11, verse 1, quote, when the people complained, in verse 4, they fell a lusting. And then if you jump to chapter 14, when the spies come back with the evil report, the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. Then if you jump forward to chapter 20, verse 3, the people chowed with Moses, saying, Would God that we had died when the, our brethren had died before the Lord. Why have you done this? Why have you brought? Sounds so much like Laman and Lemuel, right? And we're going to see that over and over and over again. In chapter 21, verse 5, the people spake against God and against Moses. And we see it all the time in our day. So one of the messages of Israel in the desert is don't turn against God. Don't feel wronged. And the beauty of the Book of Mormon is that it foils Laman with Nephi. When your bow breaks, you don't need to pout about it. You don't need to whine and feel wronged. You just do what Nephi did, and you make another bow. To that end, I would have you turn to the very first verse of the Book of Mormon. First Nephi chapter 1, verse 1. Now, this was not written as it was happening. First Nephi was written after the command to make the second set of plates, and that's somewhere around Second Nephi chapter 5. Now, by the time we hit that, Nephi is old, and Nephi is looking back on his life. And he's saying that he recognizes three things that influenced his life. Three things made him into the man that he became. First Nephi chapter 1, verse 1, number one, my family. My father, my parents, my family. And I think all of us would say the same thing. And then skipping the second one and going to the third one, in verse 1, Nephi says, the marvelous things of God had a tremendous influence in his life. His vision of the tree of life, so many connections with God and God reaching out to Nephi had a tremendous influence. But notice the second thing he's mentioned. Looking back on his life, Nephi realized that what made him who he is were his trials. And specifically, I would add how he responded to his trials. The great message of First Nephi, and I believe, therefore, the great message of the Exodus and the time that the Israelites spent in the desert, the great message is that how you respond to the trials of the desert will shape your character. Your afflictions really do make who you are. Quick geek out moment, because I'm a total trekking nerd. Captain Kirk meets this alien group of people that offer to take away his pain. And he talks to Bones and he talks to Spock about it. And he says, I like my pain. My pain defines who I am. And they have this really deep philosophical discussion on Star Trek. And I think about my experience in my life and the painful things that I've had. You know what, Bryce? I've come to the conclusion that they have shaped so much of the direction that I'm taking and what I don't want to do. Like the the reactions I don't want to have and how I want to treat my children. And so in essence, I think what you're saying is your pain really does shape your character. Positive or negative. 
Nephi or Laman? What's your choice? If you respond to your trials like Laman, you're going to become more and more like Laman and further and further away from God. If you respond more like Nephi, you're going to become more like Nephi and closer and closer to God. So let's jump into Nephi's response. Now, righteous authors don't write themselves into the story very well. We don't get to see Mormon in Mormon's writings. Well, we don't really get to see Nephi in Nephi's writings. So we got to go somewhere else to find the statement of how Nephi responded. And I want to take you to the revelation that Brigham Young receives in Winter Quarters. So if you'll turn to section 136 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Joseph Smith has been martyred. Missouri's behind us. Kirtland's behind us. And yet, we still have a lot of pain ahead of us. We've got to cross the plains. We've got to build up a desert. We've got crickets coming. We've got Johnston's army coming. So trial behind us, trial in front of us. And the Lord says to the saints in section 136, starting in verse 31, My people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. So the next two verses are Nephi's response to his trials. And this is what we should read in the Old Testament. I know there were men like Joshua and Caleb who responded this way. I know there were good guys, and you'll see that there were great moments in the desert. But listen to this process in verses 32 and 33. Let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon the Lord. See, that's the contrast to feeling wronged. When a trial comes, you can either feel wronged and say, I don't deserve this, or you can humbly call upon God. You can turn to God or you can turn away from God in the trial. So let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon the Lord his God, that his eyes may be opened that he may see, and his ears opened that he may hear. For my spirit is sent forth into the world to enlighten the humble and contrite. In other words, light comes and strength comes when you respond humbly to a trial. I find it very ironic that there are things you can see in trial when you respond humbly that you can't see in peace. So there is Nephi's response. Nephi will always run to God. For example, in 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 16, did he want to leave Jerusalem? Was he excited about leaving his friends and his high school and all of his buddies and his house and his life? He wasn't. But he turned to the Lord. This is a man of great faith. Here's another one about the Martin and Willie handcart companies that got stuck in the snow. I can't imagine how much they suffered. Well, one of the survivors was a man named Francis Webster. Years later, he was in Cedar City. And they're kind of criticizing the brethren for letting them go out so late and getting stuck in the snow. And he kind of stands up and says the following. I ask you to stop this criticism. You are discussing a matter you know nothing about. Cold historic facts mean nothing here, for they give no proper interpretation of the questions involved. Mistake to send the handcart company out so late in the season? Yes. But I was in that company. We suffered beyond anything you can imagine, and many died of exposure and starvation. 
But did you ever hear a survivor of that company utter a word of criticism? No one of that company ever apostatized or left the church because every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives. Now listen to what he says. For we became acquainted with him in our extremities. He said, I have pulled a handcart when I was so weak and weary from illness and lack of food that I could hardly put one foot ahead of the other. I looked ahead and seen a patch of sand or a hill slope, and I've said to myself, I can only go that far, and there I must give up, for I cannot pull the load through it. I have gone on to that sand, and when I reached it, the cart began pushing me. I looked back many times to see who was pushing my cart, but my eyes saw no one. I knew that the angels of God were there. Was I sorry that I chose to come by handcart? No, neither then nor any minute of my life since. The price we paid to become acquainted with God was a privilege to pay, and I am thankful that I was privileged to come in the Martin Handcart Company. This is a man of great faith who has become that because of how he responded. So let me just briefly show that to you in Exodus. We have very small glimpses of them seeing the hand of God. One of the great chapters we're going to study this week is chapter 21 of Numbers. This is the brass serpent chapter. But you're also going to find this very brief reference to a story that we're not even told. Verse 14 of chapter 21, Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon. Something happened to the Israelites while they're traveling that was so wonderful and so glorious, they wrote it down in this book of the Lord so that they would remember his hand was with them in Arnon. And it was a glorious moment for them. Now, we don't get to hear the story which is why we need the book of 1 Nephi to study numbers. We need to know that God is with them and he's blessing them. And there's wonderful people who are seeing God's hand in this trial. What happened in Arnon is a story that's going to come out someday. But I think when it comes out, we will see, like the angels pushing the handcarts for Francis Webster, that God was with his people in Israel. How many times does he still give them water and still give them food in miraculous ways? Now, we'll get into the brass serpent story, but that's another example of the goodness of God in the desert. And many people saw it. The very next story in the same chapter is this experience in Heshbon. We don't know exactly what happened, but what we do know is years later. Now, obviously, Numbers is being written many years later because they say in verse 27, Wherefore they that speak in Proverbs say, come into Heshbon. In other words, they tell the story of what happened to the Israelites while they were wandering in Heshbon. It was a marvelous example of God being with them. So see God's hand in your life. Find God in the adversity. Joseph Smith began Liberty Jail by saying, O God, where art thou? But then his heart softened. And Liberty Jail became a marvelous moment. I love that B.H. Roberts says it was more temple than prison as long as the prophet was there. That is how we should respond to our trials. How many of you listening to this, how many of you studying Israel in the desert have seen God's hand in your life during the trial?
Yeah. That's a really good application. Bryce's overview, although it's beautiful, Numbers doesn't read that way. Right. And so Numbers really is a collection of a lot of different traditions. You have stuff coming from later authors that are contradicting earlier authors. And then we have a redactor who's putting it together and saying, you know what, I'm not going to resolve the contradictions. I'm just going to let them sit there. And so if you're one of those people listening to the podcast and you are like, okay, we're reading numbers and I want to know what's going on. And it doesn't read like first Nephi because I think it's addressing so many different issues. From so many points of view throughout so many time periods and it's a compilation of 40 years. So this gets really mess- messy. Right. It's a compilation of 40 years, but then it's a compilation of centuries of tradition, editing upon editing. And, you know, and I understand, like, not everybody agrees. And sometimes people get frustrated when I say things like, hey, it's been edited. But my my point, I'm coming from the position of just read the text. If we just read it, then it is self-contradictory in some places. And I like this because it reflects history. In other words, when I read church history, like let's say Bryce and I were historical figures that went on the same trek and we wrote in our journals, we would have conflicting accounts of the same things because Bryce's view and mine, though we're at the same place, don't match up. Now, can you imagine some author taking my journal and Mike's journal and having to write one consensus about what the trip was like and trying to merge those two stories? That would get messy. It's just not going to matter. And you're going to see that today as Mike and I go through the story of Balaam. That is a messy story, and it's been edited. And so my take on Balaam is very different than Mike's take on Balaam, and I think there's value in that. So we're both going to share our take on Balaam, and you're going to see that it comes from different perspectives and the way you deal with the text that's been written. And even though Bryce and I disagree, we can still sing Kumbaya. We're still friends. We just look at the text a little bit different. Because the text kind of allows us to do that. It comes from so many different perspectives. Right. And sometimes something really good happens and they just like don't even make a mention of it. For example, the brass serpent is barely referred to in Numbers. And yet if you read the Book of Mormon, that was a major deal. They refer to it numerous times, and they embellish that story, and they apply it to their circumstances. So here's an example of whoever's writing numbers whenever they wrote it, just kind of minimizing that story that had such a tremendous influence on other people who knew the fullness of the story. And I think that there's a good argument in scholarship that the Book of Mormon authors and the brass plates are coming from the Northern tradition. And that's where we're reading the story of the serpent, which we'll get to. And it's also important to note that even Jesus references this story and likens it to himself in the third chapter of John. So I just want to apologize because my broken brain reads this stuff and it goes, what is going on? on. So if we jump around a little bit, we're trying to get to what we consider are valuable nuggets that are worth studying and worth drawing your attention to, which aren't necessarily sequential. Right. So with that in mind, Numbers 11 is where we begin in Come Follow Me. We're doing 11 through 14 and 20 through 24. And in the fourth verse of chapter 11, the Israelites are murmuring because they don't have flesh. They want to eat meat. And they say in verse 5, we remember the fish and the cucumbers and the melons, but all, all we have is this manna stuff. In chapter 21, they'll say, our soul loatheth this light bread. They're sick of the bread, right. They're sick of bread that comes from heaven. Right. But in Numbers chapter 7, which is a different tradition, that's coming from the priestly author, 
Not only do they have meat, but they have a grundle of meat. And by the way, you know it's the priestly author a lot because it sounds like a handbook. It kind of sounds like Leviticus, and they get into numbers, and they go on and on, and there's all this repetition. In the 88th verse, it talks about that they have 24 bulls, 60 rams, 60 goats, and 60 lamb that they offer as sacrifice. Now, we need to remember They didn't kill the animal and burn it and not eat it. The purpose of the sacrifice was to have a meal. It was a community meal. So if you have a community and they're eating 24 bulls and 60 rams and 60 goats and 60 lamb, I would call that meat. I would say they're eating meat. And so you read number seven where they're doing this, and then you read numbers 11 where they say all we have is manna, And my brain just starts to break and I start to go, okay, what's the problem? And so in scholarship, they say, listen, that seventh chapter is from the priestly author, which is a different tradition. And the 11th chapter is from E, a Northern tradition, what's called the Elohist. Kind of like how Nephi looked at the very same trials and Laman looked at the very same trials. Different authors are seeing this very differently. Someone says we did have meat. There was food to eat. Another one is saying, we never had anything to eat. And yet they went through the same trial. I think there's a precedence there in Nephi and Laman where you could have the same experience and see it very differently. I like that. That's good. Another thing, and this is a small thing, but another thing we need to remember is in the 32nd chapter of Exodus, where Aaron offers up the golden calf, it's at that point from the northern perspective, from the from the northern author that the tabernacle is outside the camp because they've sinned. And from the priestly perspective, it's the reverse. The tabernacle with the ark is in the midst of the camp and the children of Israel are camped around it. You almost miss it when you read it, but numbers just kind of lets the contradiction sit there. But it's a glaring contradiction in my view regarding where the tabernacle is. Is this a big deal? Not really. Not really if you're just kind of looking through this. But if you're reading the text for these kinds of details, you start seeing these things and you start asking yourself these questions. From the northern perspective, because they sinned with the golden calf, the tabernacle is a little bit separate or removed outside the camp. So in this section of Numbers 10 through 14, we're going to talk about the manna. We're going to talk about the quail. We're going to talk about the spies the giants, and Joshua and Caleb. Those are kind of the big things we're going to talk about. So let's talk about the quail. So they're crying. They don't have any food. And you know life is so hard. And so God says, well, I'm going to give you quail. In fact, I'm going to give you so much quail, you're going to be sick of quail. I'm going to shove it down your throat. <laughs> it's going to be so bad. And so go to verse 31 of Numbers chapter 11. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quail from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side round about the camp and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day and they gathered the quail. They that gathered the least, so the person who's kind of a gimp, he gathers 10 homers and they spread them all about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of God was kindled against them, and the Lord smote them with a very great plague. Now, I'm going to call this Judaic hyperbole. The authors of the text are taking what I think is an oral tradition, and you know how oral traditions get really, really big, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're they're that way to teach a story. And so what we have is we have the gimpiest kid getting 10 homers. And then you start going a little bit deeper and going, okay, what's a homer? Now, 
a Homer is a whopping 220 liters. Now that means nothing to me. I mean, I know, I know what a liter is. I know what a two liter bottle of pop is, but what's 220 liters? My brain doesn't think that way because I'm an American. So I think in gallons. So one Homer is about 58 gallons of quail. And so whenever I'm teaching students and I start talking about, okay, how much do you think this is? You know, they're like, I don't know, a lot of quail. And a lot of the pictures that there are out there, if you go to the internet and you just type in Moses and quail, it shows like people kind of picking up random quail on the ground. But the author says, as far as you can walk any which way for a day's journey, two cubits, and a cubit is from my elbow to my tip of my middle finger. So a two of those cubits is like three feet. So three feet of, I'm just going to say chicken, three feet of chicken for miles as far as you can see. And the gimpiest kid is picking up not one Homer, which is 58 gallons, but 10 of them. So 580, 570 gallons of chicken. Like this is hyperbole. So what is the author trying to say? And I think you can decide. For me, I think what the author is trying to say is the Lord is abundantly blessing them but almost to the point of, oh, you want quail? <laughs> Here you go. It's suppo- I think it's supposed to be funny. But I think it's also supposed to build faith. Instead of whining, just realize how awesome God is. Instead of seeing, this isn't fair. Why are you treating this way? Trust that the Lord has a plan and he will be there in the end. Yeah, I, I like that. So if you look in verse 20, verse 20 is another fun verse that you can tie in with verse 31. In verse 20, it says, but even a whole month until it come out of your nostrils, it will be loath- loathsome to you. So the Lord's like, I'm going to have you eating quail till it's coming out of your nose. It's, it's kind of fun. Now, in the midst of all this with the quail, there's this interesting statement that Moses makes in verse 14. And this is kind of, I think, where Nephi sits too. And I think anybody that's had to do really hard things He says, I'm not able to bear this people alone. It's just too heavy. And then he says, verse 15, just kill me, I pray thee, out of hand. If I have found favor in thy sight, let me not see my wretchedness. Moses is so despondent. And some scholars look at verse 15 of Numbers 11 as perhaps the most audacious speech to God in the entire Hebrew Bible. I mean, this is a a statement by Moses where he is just like, I'm just done. This is so hard. And then verse 16, where the Lord says, you know, I'm going to send you some help. Let's get 70 wise men and let's see if we can kind of put the burden on them. And I think I see a little bit of Joseph here in Nauvoo, where he's like, brethren, I've given you the keys and you know what? It's your turn. There are people all around us who are carrying a heavy burden and they're saying to God what Moses is saying, this is too heavy. I don't want to do it. I'm done. I want to check out. We have friends and loved ones that deal with this emotional and mental strain on themselves. And they're saying life is too heavy. And what the Lord does here is a plea to all of us in all of our dispensations. He says, find 70 people and I will, this is verse 17, I will take of the spirit which is upon thee, Moses, and I will put it upon them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not themselves. Now, I think the Lord is saying this is the very essence of Christianity. This is the very essence of the gospel, is to share the spirit of those who are downtrodden. Not just their burden, but their spirit. It's to feel what they feel. It's to feel what they are feeling to the best of our ability so that we can share their burden with them. 
I remind you of the nine principles listed in the proclamation that make family successful, and one of them is compassion. Families are only successful if there is compassion, and compassion is this act, to recognize when someone in your circle of influence is weighed down and saying, it's too heavy, I can't do it anymore, and you share their spirit, you lift the spirit off of them and put it onto you so that that burden comes with it, and you feel what they feel and know what they're going through, and that's what shares the burden. It's not the mockery of saying, oh, good luck with that. I I know what you're dealing with. It's the, I feel what you feel. Let me carry it with you. I love this chapter for what it means in our day. Find those who carry that heavy burden and share that spirit and share that burden. Yeah, I think that's a really good application of this. And I really just see, I, I pity Moses. I see the challenge of, Leadership's hard. I have a tender spot in my heart for people that are called to those positions. I know that it's a challenge. And there's a great piece of wisdom somebody shared with me one time where he said, what I see depends upon where I sit. You see, Moses sees things differently because he sits in a position of leadership. And if I was in the camp, I wouldn't see the same way because I'm not in Moses's shoes. And so That little bit of wisdom for me has helped me to have patience with people over me in all kinds of things, professionally and in the church or in in all circumstances. And I just have to stop and say, okay, Mike, what I see depends upon where I sit and I don't sit where they sit. So I'm not going to see it the way they see it. And then if I can get out of my head and have a little mercy and try to see it the way they see it, I think that is a really good thing. I think it can kind of give us a little bit of humility, make us pause and think about these things a little bit differently. And I want to talk a little bit about the manna. We've talked about the manna before, so I don't want to be this too big of a rehash. But if you go to Numbers 11, verse 7, there's this description. And so it says in the King James, the manna was as coriander seed, the color thereof was the color of bedellum. And that word is bedolach, and that is a Hebrew word. And what's interesting is that word translated as bedellum. I think a lot of English speakers read that and say, okay, what is this? And then we get into the third century Hebrew Greek speakers that are translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and they render this entire verse completely different. The Greek is in the show notes. We give you the translation. I'm just going to read you the English translation that, that we put together. The manna is like the seed of the Lord, and the sight of it was as the appearance of crystal. And in that end, that Greek ending is autu edos crustalo. That literally is the appearance of crystal. And so in the third century, the Jews looked at this as a crystal and it's described as white and it has the appearance of a crystal. So perhaps it's not a crystal. It has the appearance of it, but then they call it the seed of the Lord. And I just want to pause there with that and just kind of think about what the Book of Mormon does with the idea of God his love, and if there's perhaps a connection to manna in this idea of the seed of the Lord. It's fascinating that the descriptions of the fruit of the tree of life, it was sweet above all that was sweet, white above all that was white. Yeah. Then we read in Alma 32 that the word is like a seed that we plant in us. And then that seed grows into a tree. And Bryce, you've talked about this a lot. If we nourish the tree, the tree then nourishes 
us. And I can't get away from thinking about the bread of the sacrament as a, a symbol of the manna, but also as a symbol for a seed of God, meaning it's in him. And then I'm coupling this with the idea that Abinadi says, where he says, if you're a follower of the prophets, if you believe in the redemption of Christ, that he can redeem us from our fallen state, we become the seed. We become the seed of Jesus. And so we put that in us and it becomes us. Partaking of the bread, partaking of his seed. Right. I don't know if this is a connection, so just forgive me for my speculation. I'm just looking at stuff. But I can't help to think of its description as crystal to that idea in section 130 where the Lord says to Joseph, when Joseph Smith asks about Revelation 2, and he's like, what is this white stone? And the Lord says, that will be given to those that enter into the celestial kingdom upon which a new name is written. This is all in section 130. And Verses I can't, 9 and 10. I love the, yes. 9, 10, and 11. I, I can't help but think there may be a connection here. There may be a significant connection to coming into God's presence, connected to the manna. In other words, it's more than just food, but that it's connected to entering into God's presence, perhaps. And then in verse eight, it talks about how they ground it up and they made it and they baked it and they did all these things with it. And then the last part of verse eight says that the taste of it was the taste of fresh oil. And then what's fascinating to me is the end of that verse it's described as Hashemin. And that word Shemin is where we get the word Gethsemane. And that word Shemin can mean a lot of things. It can mean fat. It can mean oil. It's connected to the oil that comes from the olive. And Shemin is connected to Get Shemin, which is Gethsemane, the olive press. One translator translates the end of verse eight as this. The taste of it was like the taste of rich cream. And I like this translation because it brings to mind the idea of butter and honey that the messianic figure will eat in Isaiah. You see, Isaiah sees this image of a child that eats butter and honey. We'll get to that when we get to Isaiah. But the land of Israel is described as the land of milk and honey. And so cream or fat, as it were, shemen, as the taste of this bread, I think is a very rich symbol for them coming into God's presence with a physical manifestation. In other words, they're holding something in their hand that represents coming into God's presence. And in modern speech, I would say when we take the bread, when we put it in our hand and then we eat it, that is a physical manifestation of the invitation that will one day become a reality, that we will one day come into God's presence. I really like that. I think that is something that is worth pondering and thinking about. And as you think about the manna that the Lord gave them for 40 years, think about this verse in the Book of Mormon from 2 Nephi 9. Come, my brethren, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come by and eat. Yea, come by wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore, do not spend money for that which is of no worth, nor your labor for that which cannot satisfy. Hearken diligently unto me, and remember the words which I have spoken, and come unto the Holy One of Israel, and feast upon that which perisheth not. Neither can be corrupted, and let your soul delight in fatness. Second Nephi 9, 50 and 51. The irony is when the Israelites say, we loathe this bread, we loathe the manna, we want something else, we want something new, we want something exciting. And isn't that kind of where the world is today? The Lord is offering manna, the Lord is offering 
water that will quench your thirst. He will fill your soul. And sometimes we find people saying, I loathe that and I want something more exciting. You know, on a personal note, sometimes I may have had that experience where I think, okay, I want to be taught something. And sometimes we go to church wanting that, and maybe we don't hear something new. And maybe the Lord's saying to us, how can you lift up the hands that hang down? When the Israelites are in this position of we're tired of the same old stuff, we think in modern times that we're so different. And I think perhaps there's more application in the scriptures than we maybe like to think. Because I'm talking, I'm ripping on myself. Okay, so... We've kind of talked a little bit about the manna and the quail and Moses' struggle. Then we get to the 12th chapter, and the 12th chapter is this challenge to Moses' authority, and it's coming from Aaron and Miriam, and they're going to get reprimanded. They're going to rip on him for his Cushite wife, or what the English says is his Ethiopian wife in verse 1, which is complicated because Zippor is not an Ethiopian, so what do you do with that? And then there's verse 3. And a lot of scholars looked at verse 3, and they said, okay, this is proof that Moses didn't write the Torah. Or they would say, this is proof that at least he didn't write this verse. Maybe this verse was written after Moses. Because literally it says that Moses was the most humble guy that ever walked on the face of the earth. And I can see the King James translators saying, okay, we are not writing that. And so they put in the King James. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And obviously you see the irony because if you're writing it and you say, I'm the most humblest person ever. (laughs) Okay. You see the problem, right? There's a problem there. And so whatever you want to do with this, I think the main thing is that the Lord is saying, no, Moses is my guy. Now I want to be careful because we've praised Aaron and Miriam and other podcasts. We've talked about the things where Aaron and Miriam are portrayed in a positive light, but in this chapter, they're portrayed in a negative light, and it's them coming at Moses, and it's so enigmatic. I mean, what do we do with this Cushite woman? I don't have the answer, but that's what they're coming at him for. And so the Lord says, verse 7, my servant Moses is not so. In other words, he's not a bad guy. Who is faithful in all my house? So he's saying, he's my guy. And then verse 8, with him I will speak mouth to mouth even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And so God speaks on Moses's behalf, and he says, Moses is my authorized representative. Now, this is a common problem in Joseph Smith's day, and you're going to find that theme all throughout the early part of the Doctrine and Covenants, where some of them were coming out of Christian traditions where no one had authority, and we all just kind of equally run the church. That was kind of the the Whitmer brothers' tradition. And the Lord has to teach them about hierarchical keys and that Joseph holds the highest of the keys. And so that's a difficult lesson for a lot of people to learn, yielding to keys in a priesthood context. And so that's a struggle. Hiram Page gets a seer stone. And so they thought, well, whoever has the stone gets the revelation. And the Lord has to correct that and says, no, you're all welcome to revelation. Everyone can receive revelation, but there are key holders. There is a key holder that receives revelation for the church. And if you don't have that key, you can't receive revelation for the church. So this is a common challenge about receiving instructions within our stewardship and not necessarily going beyond that stewardship. And so again, I imagine that was a lesson that they had to learn in Israel. 
And the saints had to learn it in the early part of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's still being learned today. We have to understand what is my role in the kingdom, how do I receive revelation, and yet realize that there are hierarchical keys that allow people above me to receive revelation for me that I don't necessarily receive revelation for them. Excellent. Numbers is clearly trying to wrestle with issues of authority. In the 13th chapter, is where they send out a bunch of spies. They go for about 40 days, and they come back and give this report that the land is flowing with milk and honey. Nevertheless, the very next word, (laughs) and you're going to see that oxymoron so many times. In verse 27, surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit thereof. But next word is, nevertheless, there's that juxtaposition of hope and yet doubt. Yeah, we can't do it. We can't go in. A bunch of them say we can't. We have two spies that come and say we can, and that verse 30 tells us that it's Caleb. Caleb and Joshua say, let us go up and possess it, and we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and do it. But verse 32 says the majority of the spies brought up an evil report of the land. And then in the 33rd verse, they say that we saw the giants. Now, sometimes that's the Nephilim, sometimes it's the Rephaim, and we've talked about the giants with Genesis 6, and we'll see this with Og. Og is this kind of representative of the last of the Rephaim, the last of the giants, and there's a lot of mythological stuff going on with this, and some of the people that inhabit this land are portrayed as this group of giants that must be put down. I love this as an analogy here because... If you look only at your problem, like the giants, they seem enormous. In other words, my problem compared to me is enormous. A short man looking at a giant is going to say, he's so much bigger than I am. But if you look at the giants compared to God, do you remember when David takes down Goliath? I think the army was looking at Goliath compared to themselves. And David shows up and compares Goliath to God. And compared to God, Goliath is nothing. And so you can have this approach where you say, if you see your problems without God, then the problems are going to seem humongous and we can't do it. If instead you compare your problems to God, your problems seem oh so small and clearly we can conquer this. So you have 10 spies seeing the giants and not God and the giants are huge. You have two spies seeing the giants next to God and realizing that the giants are very, very small, and we can do this. I will also say from a faithful position, when it comes to theology, looking at religion, it's a lot easier to tear down faith than it is to build it. It's kind of like things in our life that matter, like a marriage or a family. It takes time to build a family, to build a marriage, but you can destroy it real quick. And it doesn't take a lot to demo a house you can demo a house a lot quicker than building it. And so the 10 spies that bring in the evil report that are trying to destroy faith, I think that's the easy route. And so in the very first verse of the next chapter, chapter 14, everybody's weeping. And then at the end of verse two, they say, we should have died. We're back to kind of the things you've talked about, Bryce, with the Book of Mormon, because it really is easy to look at the negative and to tear things down. And I do that sometimes. Like I'll get, somebody will say something negative to me. And for every 10 positive things I hear, the negative just, it sticks with you. And I think sometimes when we hear a negative thing, it can drive us to be somebody who achieves. Like you try harder because, you know, people say that you can't do it. How many times we read about this in sports or in all kinds of stories of successful people that had naysayers? 
But there's another side to that. Right. The daughters of Ishmael in 1 Nephi 16, when Ishmael dies, which is today's burden, they add to today's burden by remember yesterday's burden and assuming tomorrow's burden. So some of us have a tendency when we get an evil report to add to that burden of today's report every bad thing that's ever happened to us in the past, and we assume bad things are going to happen in the future. So now we're not only carrying today's weight, but we're carrying yesterday and tomorrow's weight, and that crushes us. It does. And then we assume the worst. And so I think you can take it and you can say, well, I'm going to take the negative things. I'm going to try to build with it and move forward. I see this with Moses. I love the end of verse nine, where they say, the Lord is with us, fear them not. And so there's those that are faithful, and then there's those that aren't. I mean, if you look in verse 10, the congregation bade stone them with stones. They want to kill the positive spies, Joshua and Caleb. But then verse 10 says, the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? And then he says in verse 12, I'm going to smite them and I'm going to make a greater nation. And then Moses steps into this role of the redeemer and he essentially convinces the Lord not to do it. If you read verses 13 through about verse 20, Moses says, if you do that, Lord, if you destroy these people, the Egyptians are going to make fun of you. And they're going to say things like, why did you deliver them if only to destroy them? Now, I like this as Moses standing in the position of a redeemer, but I also like this as it teaches a principle that the Lord will raise up a mighty people. You see, after the spies give their report, we read that the people that want to die in the wilderness, the Lord says, okay, you can. You can die in the wilderness. I'll that's what you request. want. I'll, I'll give it to you. And that's really the spirit of the beginning of Alma 29, where we read that the Lord will grant unto men decrees which are unalterable according to their wills. God will grant that. But the other side of the story is that God will have a righteous people. If it's not you, I'll wait till I have it. We'll, we'll get it. Yeah, I really like this. And it really reminds me of the story of Brigham Young in August, 1844, in Nauvoo. After Joseph's death. Yeah, right after Joseph dies, he stands up and he tells the saints that the 12 have the keys. And then this is James E. Faust telling the story. He says that Brigham Young, having been a keen observer of the prophet Joseph Smith and of many of the events of the Restoration, that Brigham bore strong witness that the keys had been left with the 12 after Joseph had been martyred. And then Brigham told the saints that if they would not sustain the 12, then the 12 would go and raise up a people who would. That's a powerful statement. And then James E. Faust said that that showed how much confidence that Brigham had in the 12. He knew they had the keys, the commission, and the responsibility to, be, to build the kingdom, and that the Lord would raise up a people who would. And so that principle still holds true. But I like this, how Moses stands in that position of intercessor. He stands betwixt the people that are struggling and the Lord who wants to build the kingdom, and Moses saves the people in his plea to the Lord. And I kind of see that intercessory role that Moses takes as prefiguring the intercessory role that the Savior takes. In other words, I see, even though it's clunky, I see Jesus in verses 13 through 19. And I wonder if Russell Nelson is playing that role today. I wonder if the people aren't ready to build Zion, and the Lord is saying, why aren't my people ready to build Zion? And Russell Nelson is in that same position saying, give us time, 
help us. We're going to do this. We will raise a people to build Zion. And I wonder if maybe we, maybe we should see ourselves in this story and say to ourselves, the Lord is going to build Zion. And if it's not us, then he'll just let us wander in the wilderness until he has a generation that will. The Lord will build Zion. And if it's not us, it's going to be someone else. So why not let it be us? Let's not be the people that have to die in the wilderness so that the generation that will build Zion comes along. Let's let it be us. And I think that is a powerful message for the Latter-day Saints today, because we're also trying to go into a promised land and build a wonderful city. And, and the Lord says to them, well, the people you've got right now aren't the people. So I'll wait till the right people come along. It's tough. And so that's kind of the end of the 14th chapter, verse 32 and 33, is they're just going to wander and and they're going to die. But that's what they want. They're asking for it. So the Lord says, okay, well, I will grant unto you according to your wills. Oh, we're skipping a lot of things. So just know that we really worked to try to put an outline out there in the show notes. If you want to see some of the things that we're not covering, because we're clearly not even covering a third of what's going on in the book of Numbers. So in Numbers 20, Miriam dies in verse 1, and in verse 2, the water dries up. That's an important symbol. And then Aaron's going to die, and the people mourn. And there's also this passage in Numbers 20 where Moses says, must we fetch this water out of this rock for you? And that's in verse 10. And then as a response, water came out abundantly, But then there's this reprimand in the 12th verse that the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron and said, because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah. And it's kind of puzzling, and there's a lot of commentary on this, but this verse is the reason that is given later for Moses not entering into the promised land. And we'll read in Deuteronomy that his sepulcher is not known unto this day. Moses dies, and he's buried, but we know not where. Now think about this. Moses is like the central figure. Like, how do you not know where he's buried? I mean, in America, we know where George Washington's buried, right? We know where these founding figures are buried. The Book of Mormon will say that Moses was translated. He needs to appear on the Mount of Transfiguration to right. pass keys onto Peter, James, and John before the resurrection can occur. Right. I, and, and so I look at verse 12 and I say, I'm just going to say verse 12 is an explanation that perhaps a later editor or scribe kind of put in there to kind of denigrate Moses. I'm not going to denigrate Moses. In other words, I'm going to say that the text has issues. I'm just going to say that. It certainly doesn't fit with the narrative that we hold, especially remember Joseph of Egypt's vision where the Lord says to Joseph, I'm going to send a great seer and he's going to deliver my people. Moses is held in very high esteem. And I remind you that Moses appears on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses appears to Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple. That doesn't sound like someone that's in the doghouse with the Lord. And yet that's kind of that verse where he's denigrated. Now, before we leave 21, there's this little episode with Edom, and they ask permission to go through Edom. We'll be nice. We won't steal anything, but we just need to go through your land. And Edom says, absolutely not. Verse 21 says, Edom refused to give Israel passage to his border, wherefore Israel turned away from him. 
Now, I think there's a link to Jesus in Luke chapter 9. There's this beautiful story where Jesus is on his way from, I believe it's Galilee to Jerusalem. It may be Jerusalem to Galilee, but he's going from one to the other, and they're passing through Samaria, and they need a hotel. And he sends the disciples in to a Samaritan village to get lodging for the night. And the Samaritans don't like the Jews. And so they see that Jesus is a Jew and they say, no, he can't stay here. We're not going to let that kind of person stay in our hotel. I mean, this would be called racism in our day. This would be called bigotry. We're not going to let a Jew stay in our hotel. So James and John come back and say, what should we do? What should we do? Should we call down fire and burn them? Is the response to being belittled and mocked and made fun of retribution? James and John want to call down fire from heaven and consume them. And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are right now. And then he says this beautiful verse in verse 56, for the son of man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he went to another village. He chose not to be offended. He just found another hotel. I leave that for you to ponder and whatever conclusions you come to. But I find in that a connection to Edom's refusal to let Israel pass. And the last thing it says is Israel turned away. Instead of being offended and fighting, I wonder if it's saying that they just found another way through. Yeah, we can get angry and fiery or we can just, because our whole world is full of just all this anger. And I think we can take a lot from that and say, am I going to be somebody who's continuously offended constantly full of rage, or are we going to just be somebody like Jesus? The 21st chapter of Numbers talks about the serpent of brass that Moses affixed to a pole in verse 8. And the reason why he does it is because the people are bitten by fiery serpents, and they're so sad. Verse 5 says, have ye brought us here to Egypt to die in the wilderness? And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. And they cry to Moses, we have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents. And so that's what verse 8 is all about. He builds the serpent of brass, and all they have to do is look, and they'll live. And when they did this, they lived. He put it on the pole, and it came to pass if a servant bit a man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And that's kind of the end of the story. And that's so all the Old Testament gives us. Give us a lot. So the Book of Mormon gives us a lot more information. And makes incredible connections. Nephi uses this story when he's rebuking his brethren in chapter 17. Alma uses this story to talk about the value of the scriptures, that we should look to the scriptures and live. Yeah. And then Alma uses it with the Zoramites to talk about how you plant the seed. You plant the seed by looking to Christ and living. That connection in the Book of Mormon means so much. Look to God and live. So Alma says in Alma 33, in verse 19, he says, Behold, he was spoken of by Moses, yea, and a type was raised in the wilderness, that whoever would look upon it might live. And that type is the brazen serpent on the pole. And many did look and live. So Alma's acknowledging that many did. But then he says, But few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look. Therefore, they perished. Now, the reason they would not look is because they did not believe 
that it would heal them. Meaning, I think what he's saying is that they did not believe that it would work for them personally. They saw that it worked. They looked around and saw people being healed, but they didn't believe that it worked for them. And so then Alma says in verse 21, Oh, my brethren, if ye could be healed by merely casting about your eyes, that ye might be healed, would ye not behold quickly? Or would ye rather harden your hearts in unbelief and be slothful, that ye would not cast about your eyes, that ye might perish? If so, woe shall come upon you. But if not, then cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God. And so, in 37, when he's passing the plates to his son Helaman, and he's trying to help Helaman understand how important the scriptures are, he's merging the stories of the brass serpent and the Leahona, both of which were made of brass. And so he starts talking about how the scriptures are a way to look to God and live. And he says in verse 45 of Alma 37, And now I say, is there not a type in this thing? For just as surely as this director did bring our fathers by following its course to the promised land, shall the words of Christ, if we follow their course, carry us beyond this veil of sorrow into a far better land of promise? And, O my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. For so it was with our fathers, and so is it prepared for them, that if they would look, they might live. There's the reference to the brass serpent as well as the Leahona. If they would look, they would live. Even so it is with us. The way is prepared that if we will look, we may live forever. Now, my son, see that ye take care of these sacred things, the scriptures. See that ye look to God and live. I think that's so beautiful. Sometimes we there's a disconnect. Sometimes we don't see how is reading the Book of Mormon going to save my family. I once was camping, winter camping with a young man, and he was so cold, and he kept waking me up at night, and he's like, Mike, I'm so cold, and I kept giving him things to wear, but he wouldn't put on a hat. And we're out in this winter weather, and I keep begging him to put the hat on, and he says to me, but Mike, my head isn't cold. I'm cold. He didn't make the connection that if he put a hat on, that he would actually stay warm. And I think sometimes we have a disconnect between seeing, quote, these sacred things and understanding how they'll help us with our other problems. And what Alma is trying to emphasize is that these sacred things that they're put in this type, this type of the serpent that Moses raised up. And then later Jesus will say in John chapter three, even as the serpent was raised up, so shall the son of man be lifted up. And I believe that it's not the gospel necessarily that's hard, it's life. Life is hard. And if we want help in navigating these tough things, we need the savior. We can't do it without him. And not to be too nerdy, but that word things, Debarim, in the Hebrew language, that is things, but that is also words. And so when you read things in the Book of Mormon, it is consistently used that way. These sacred words will bring us to Christ, or these sacred things. It's the same word, and it's consistently used here. And so when I read this, verse 45, and now I say, is there not a type in this word? Meaning this word is a type. And if we follow its course, it will lead us to the end of verse 45, a far better land of promise, or as I like to think of it as, into a far better land of milk and honey. 
will get to the tree. And so that's my testimony with the serpent. I think, Bryce, the Book of Mormon, once again, is just gold standard stuff. It just comes out and explains it. And one more thought from Nephi. Nephi uses this story to emphasize another point. In 1 Nephi 17, 41, he says, He sent fiery flying serpents among them, and after they had bitten, he prepared a way that they might be healed. And the labor that had to perform was to look. And then here's Nephi's commentary. After everything Mike just said about looking to the scriptures, looking to the word, he says, because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. So this story teaches some perished because they didn't believe it would heal them. Others perished because it was just too easy. And the same idea applies today. Sometimes we don't look to the scriptures. We don't go to the temple because I don't think the gospel works for me. And other people are just caught up in the easiness of the solution. If it's easy to do, it's easy to forget to do. So Nephi says, don't let the easiness of it be the problem. So do you see the influence this story had in the Book of Mormon? It's kind of everywhere. It's a big deal. And it's a major influence. And that's something the Lord is going to use often in the Doctrine and Covenants. He's going to say things like, look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not, behold the wounds which pierce my side, and also the prints of the nails in my hands and my feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's a fancy way of saying, look unto me and live. And then he says in section 19, something very, very similar. He says, learn of me, listen to my words, and walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me. That message of look to God and live permeates modern-day Scripture. Yeah, that's good. So, Bryce, before we get into the stuff with Balaam in Numbers 22 through 24, I just want to make a reference to this story of Og in the 21st chapter. So verse 31 of Numbers 21 says, Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites, and Moses sent to spy out uh, Jazer, and they took the villages thereof. And verse 33 says, They turned and went by the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to the battle. And the Lord said, verse 34, Fear him not, for I have delivered him into thy hand, and all his people, and his land. And thou shalt do to him as thou didst to Sihon, king of Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. And so they smote him and his sons and all his people. Now, there's other texts in the Old Testament that refer to the size of Og's bed. And it refers to him as this Rephaim. He's, he's one of the giants. In fact, his bed is this astronomically giant bed. And it's the same size of bed as Marduk lived in. Now, Marduk is this god of, of Mesopotamia, of Babylon. And so I think what's going on here is the authors are putting Og in that position of this other god, this other being, and he's referred to as a Rephraim, or a shade or a giant, as it were. One of the struggles we see, we see this throughout Numbers, is Israel is pushing up against other cultures, other gods, other ways of seeing the heavens and the earth. And in each instance, God is telling them to trust him. And so we've talked about Bashan before when we talked about the giants back in Genesis 6 and when we did Psalm 68. So rather than go too much into this, we cite a lot of this stuff by Laura Quick, and we linked this in the show notes, connecting Bashan, Og, his bed, the giants, and the underworld to refer to this idea 
as Israel is defeating the mythological or typological forces of evil. I think that's a quick way to say it. But if you're one of those people where you want to go a little bit deeper, what I call down the rabbit hole of the nerds, which I love, you want to geek out on this, you want to go to the show notes starting at about page eight, but we kind of outline it for you. So starting at the numbers 21 bit when it talks about the victory over Og. And with that, we're going to then jump into the Balaam oracles. Balaam is this guy who is hired by the king of Moab. His name is Balak, and he's the king, and he offers money to Balaam to curse Israel. Now, Balaam was a seer or a mantis or a oracle in the ancient Near East. They actually discovered in Jordan a text that talks about the tradition of Balaam as a seer, a non-Israelite seer, and his services were requested by individuals. And so he's asked to do this. He's asked to curse Israel. And verse 12 is God speaking to Balaam. It says in verse 12 of Numbers 22, God said to Balaam, thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people for they are blessed. And then in verse 13, Balaam steps forward and says, look, I'm not going to do it. Get you to your lands for the Lord refuses to give me leave to go with you. Remember, this is all an offer of money. I'm hiring you for your services. You are a prophet. You prophesy. Whoever you curse gets cursed. And I'm offering you money to do this. And so now Balak ups the ante. He sends more honorable people, and he sends more money. And then he says in verse 17, I will promote thee unto great honor. So once again, Balaam is tempted to go and curse, but he lets the Lord answer him, and the answer is no. So after he's given this offer of promotion and great honor in verse 17, Balaam's response is, if Balak would give me a house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, verse 18 is interpreted a lot of different ways. James Kugel, who wrote a great book, How to Read the Bible, he essentially says, look, there's a couple ways you can read this. One of the ways you can read it is Balaam is basically saying, listen, if you want me to curse Israel, bro, it's going to cost you a lot. You're going to have to pay me a lot of money. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation of verse 18 is Balaam saying, I'm not going to go beyond what God has spoken. I'm going to take verse 18 as Balaam saying, I'm not going to go beyond what God or the God of Israel has said. So I'm going to read verse 18 in the context of the four oracles that he gives. And these four oracles are very positive for Israel. He's going to give four prophecies that to Israel are very positive. So that's how I'm reading verse 18. And so then God comes to him in verse 20. God came to Balaam at night and he said to him, if the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. So in essence, verse 20, God is telling Balaam, if they come to require you to go and curse, go, go with them. So verse 20 says, Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey and he went with the princes of Moab. So remember, verse 20, God says, go, if they call you. Verse 22, it says, God's anger was kindled because he went. So there's a couple different ways you can read this. I mean, one way you can read it is in verse 21. It doesn't say that the princes of Moab came to get him. It's just that he rose up and he went. That's one way to read it. Another way to read verse 21 and 22 is, the men came to get him and he went with them. But then why would God get angry? And this is where modern biblical scholarship gets involved because of the oracles. The four oracles are positive. And in their view, and I would agree with their opinion, is that there's a couple stories here. There's the story, and then there's the tradition that surrounds it and interpretation. 
Now, Bryce is going to probably take a little bit of a different view, and we're going to give you a couple ways to read it. But with this reading, he's going up and he's doing what God said. Remember, God said, verse 20, if they come to get you, go with them. So then we get to the story where the donkey's talking to him and he won't let him pass through, quote, the narrow place in verse 26. And then we read in verse 31 that the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he sees the angel. And the angel says in verse 32, wherefore have you smitten the, the donkey three times? And then he basically says, listen, the donkey wouldn't go where I wanted to go. But then notice verse 35. The angel said to Balaam, go with the men. So twice he's told to go with them. But then in verse 35 of Numbers 22, the angel says, but only the word which I shall speak unto thee, that shalt thou speak. So Balaam went with the princes. Twice God says, go with them. The second time it's the angel. He's told to go, so he goes. Then Balaam gives four oracles. So what are the oracles? In the first oracle, Balaam essentially says, how shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? In other words, unless God curses them, I'm not going to do it. And then he says in verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob? That could probably be referring to the dust clouds created by Jacob's armies as they march. In other words, this prophecy is glorifying in the greatness of Israel. Overall, this is a positive oracle. And then the gist of the second oracle really starts in verse 21. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him. So this is a blessing. God is with Israel. Verse 22, God brought them up out of Egypt and he has given them the strength of a wild ox or a unicorn. He basically talks about them as being very great and very prosperous. And then if you go into verse 24, Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eats of his prey and drink the blood of the slain. This has reminiscences of the blessing in Genesis 49, where Judah is a young lion that shall rise up. I mean, I see a lot of connection between verse 24 and Genesis 25 in the Testament of Jacob. And so those are positive oracles. So Balaam is asked again, to give a prophecy. So if you go to Numbers 24, verse 5, it says, How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. And then skip down to verse 8. God has brought him forth out of Egypt. Verse 9. He couched, he laid down as a lion and as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? We're back to Genesis 49 again with that image of lion. And then it says in verse 10 that Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. So three times Balaam has been asked to curse the enemies of Balak. And three times he gives prophetic blessings that are very, in my mind, they're very reminiscent of the prophecies of Jacob that he gave in Genesis 49. And then we get to verse 13. And I think to me, this really tells us who Balaam is. He says, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I'm not going to go beyond the commandment of the Lord. So super positive. Like, I'm not going to go and do this stuff. So then in, in the fourth oracle, which is in the 24th chapter, he says this. And I think this is the best stuff. If you start in verse 17, he says in the third line, 
There will come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheph. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion. So in in verse 17, to me, in Numbers 24, verse 17 can definitely be a prophecy about the Savior, a star out of Jacob, a scepter that shall rise up out of Israel, and then smite the enemies of Israel. I mean, this is the cosmic king. This is the the messianic cosmic king that the Jews are looking for. And you'd think by reading these four oracles, and you'd think by listening to how Balaam is, where he's like, I'm not going to say anything other than what God would have me say, you'd think that Balaam would be a huge hero in Judaism. You'd think that he would be praised throughout the Bible as this this seer from another land that clearly saw the destiny of Israel, and yet for the bulk of the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, he's denigrated. Especially in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the doctrine of Balaam, that's such a negative thing. He really gets a bad rap. Yeah. The only positive verse that I found is Micah 6. Micah 6 gives a positive spin on Balaam, but everything else negative stuff. I mean, we're talking Jude, we're talking the book of Revelation, and then Second uh, Peter has a reference to him in the negative. The first negative thing that's going to pop up against him is going to come up in Numbers 31. And then it's going to come up again in Deuteronomy 23, and then Joshua, a couple times in Joshua, and then in Nehemiah. And like I said, Micah 6, 5 is the only positive spin. But then in the New Testament, Bryce, you're right, like they throw a lot of shade at our friend Balaam here. And yet... In the oracles that he gives, he's talking about them as positive. So here's my take on this. I read this as a story within a story, and that core story is positive, and that tradition over time, he was put into a negative place. In other words, that the text has a history. So why is Balaam cast in a bad light? And I certainly don't have the answer. I think one of the things that could be a possibility is that because he came from outside of the tradition of Israel, that he was cast in a bad light. And there's a lot of scholarship on this, that when Deuteronomy is textualized, we think during the 7th century, that there's a push against divination. There's a push against seership, a reflection that's going to cast Moses in a favorable light. There's this real big tension in the Old Testament, like, what do we do with prophets, and how do we distinguish between true and false ones? And so one of the takeaways I think we can get from Balaam is this, that perhaps later authors picked up the tradition that Balaam was negative because he was from Moab, outside Israel. There's another thread you can pull, and that's the thread of Moab. The Old Testament has a negative view of Moab. If you remember all the way back from Genesis 19, Moab is cast in a bad light, as is Ammon, because those two nations descended from the incestuous relationship from Genesis 19 from Lot and his daughters. But then there's another pushback in the Old Testament when Moab is cast in a good light. We have, for example, the book of Ruth. Ruth is also from Moab. We'll talk about Ruth later, but know that Ruth's descendants create David, and David is the Davidic king. He comes out of Moab. So there's some stuff in the Old Testament that is positive about Moab. And so there's this tension in the Old Testament, like, what do we do with Moab? And in this tradition is this guy named Balaam. And then in 1967, some archaeologists were in Jordan, and they found what's called the Balaam transcription. So uh, Joanne Hackett has done some work on this in The Biblical Archaeologist, and we linked this in the show notes. But my take on the inscription, 
is that Balaam sits in the tradition of the old prophets where they were brought into the council of the gods and they saw things on the other side of the veil and then they came and they gave these prophetic visions. And that's kind of how I read Balaam and that over time he's denigrated as a negative figure. Now, just because I said all this doesn't mean I'm right. I don't know I wasn't there. But if you just read what it says about Balaam in Numbers and you read what he says, it's positive. And so Bryce has another way to look at this. And I think what Bryce has to say is every bit is valid. And I think it also has a lot of application. And I find it interesting, Mike, when we see things differently. I think one of the things I hope all of you listening will pull out of that is there are many ways to view the scriptures. And I very much enjoy listening to Mike's take on the scriptures. And I hope that Mike enjoys listening to my take on the scriptures. Now, I believe that Balaam gets a bad rap because the reason Balaam went was for the money. Here's how my brain operates. I will take the text as it is. I'm not necessarily going to worry about the history or the oral tradition and all that. I take the text as it is, and then my brain scours the rest of the scriptures to see if I can connect this story with other stories that have similar messages and maybe answer some of the questions that I have about this story. Mike and I have talked a lot about the gold and the clay principle, and that is how heaven and God, who is the gold, connects with man on earth that is the clay. You and I are mortal beings in this mortal world, and inside of us, there's kind of a gold and a clay as well. There's a spirit inside of me that longs to do spiritual things. But there's a natural man inside of me that longs to give in to those natural urges. And so within me, there's kind of a gold and a clay principle going on as well. And when I look at the scriptures, I begin to realize, boy, that really is a major theme of the scriptures, is the wrestle within us between the gold and the clay. Paul talks a great deal about the war that's going on in his members. He's talking about the natural man, the clay, warring against the spirit or the gold. And then I find it also in Nicodemus. Do you remember how Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews, came by night? Now there's the clay. He doesn't want anyone to see that he's talking to Jesus because he's worried about what other people think. But then he says to Jesus, I know that you're a teacher sent from God. There's the gold. And I think this is so human. This is such a normal challenge for all of us to wrestle between the gold and the clay. Joseph Smith wrestled with that same thing on his very first visit to Camorra. The last thing Moroni says in visit three, and then again repeats it in visit four, is that Satan would try and tempt Joseph to use the gold plates to get rich. See, there's the clay. Joseph, your mind is going to think about getting these plates to get rich. Don't do it. And do you know what happened that first visit to Camorra? Let me read from the words of Oliver Cowdery exactly what happened on that very first visit. He said, Here was a struggle indeed, for when he calmly reflected upon his errand, he knew that if God did not give, he could not obtain. There's the gold. And again, with the thought of hope of obtaining, his mind would be carried back to its former reflection of poverty, abuse, wealth, grandeur, and ease until before arriving at the place described, this wholly occupied his desire. 
And to use his own words, it seemed as though two invisible powers were influencing or striving to influence his mind. One with the reflection that if he obtained the object of his pursuit, it would be through the mercy and condescension of the Lord, and that every act or performance in relation to it must be in strict accordance with this instruction of that personage who communicated intelligence to him first. There's the gold. And the other with the thoughts and reflections like those previously mentioned, contrasting his former and present circumstances in life with those to come. There's the clay. There's the thought of getting rich. So I got to follow God's commandments, but I have a gold book here. That precious instructions recorded on the sacred page, Pray Always, which was expressly impressed upon him, was at length entirely forgotten. And as I previously remarked, a fixed determination to obtain and aggrandize himself occupied his mind when he arrived at the place where the record was found. In other words, Joseph gave in to the clay. Now, I believe that Balaam gets a bad rap because the real story of Balaam is the story of the wrestle between the gold and the clay. And someone later on is going to see that wrestle and paint him in a, in a bad light. You know, Bryce, before you go on, let's talk about what happens. When Joseph goes to get the plates and his mind is thinking, oh, I could sell some of this to get rich. He gets zapped. Yeah. So Moroni reads his thoughts. And why is he zapped? And then he says, why can I not obtain them? And suddenly Moroni shows up and says, because you didn't follow the instructions. And then Joseph is shown Lucifer and the powers of hell. And he says, look, I'm going to show you this so that you understand that there is really a power of darkness that you gave into. And so there is an acknowledgement from heaven that there is this wrestle inside of us between the gold and the clay. Now, I think, unfortunately, Balaam is now painted in a bad light because he wrestled and he was tempted by the clay. But I love that wrestle. I love that Joseph struggled this way because this is my life. I'm sure this is your life. The struggle between the gold and the clay, the struggle of Nicodemus to say, well, I'm not socially ready to let people know that I'm a Christian because I want to run in those circles and I want those people to like me and they can't know that I'm with Jesus, but I really do love Jesus and I do believe he's a prophet. So I think if you read the story of Balaam this week, knowing that all of us struggle with that, I think you'll see him in a totally different light. I believe that clarifies the discrepancy in chapter 22 when he goes. So in verse 20, the Lord says, If men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. But what I think is missing here are the instructions like Joseph Smith was given from Moroni. Do not do this to get rich. I think there is clear evidence that Balaam has done that in the past. If you jump to chapter 24, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not as at other times to seek for enchantments. That was chapter 24, verse 1. So I think Balaam has in the past been for hire. Uh, I'll bless or curse for hire. I will do God's work and I want to get paid for it. But I think this time is different. I think this time the Lord is really here saying, go with the men, but don't do it for gain or for recognition. Do it for the glory of God. I think Balaam was given the same instructions that Joseph Smith was given, 
But the Lord knew his thoughts, and the reason Balaam went was for the money. I think that explains why God's anger was kindled, because he broke that part of the instruction. He initially went to get rich. But then this whole episode with the donkey opens his eyes, and now his motive is simply for the glory of God. Now he's to the gold. And now he blesses three times and then gives a beautiful prophecy, the fourth oracle, instead of cursing. His eyes are open. I love how in chapter 24, when he, when he finally gives his fourth prophecy, in verse 15, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open. He points that out again in verse 16, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. I think the way I take that is Balaam was wrestling between the gold and the clay, but he's come to himself and he realizes that God is in this, that I'm not going to do this for money. I'm going to do this for the glory of God. I'm even going to anger Balak because my motive is the glory of God. So for me, Balaam is a hero. Balaam is the every one of us. It's the struggle with the natural man. Now, you can't tell me that you haven't at times chosen the clay. Even in our gospel pursuit, we've chosen the clay. But then the Spirit jumps in and works with us and opens our eyes like Moroni coming and zapping Joseph, and we wake up and we say, okay, no, okay, you're right, and then we jump back to the gold. This is Joseph on his way to Cumorah, and unfortunately, the rest of the storytellers, when they tell the story, are going to focus on the fact that he was tempted by the clay. How dare he be tempted by the clay? And some people look at the Joseph Smith story and would focus only on that. Oh my goodness, he's going to get the cold place to get rich. How could that be a prophet? And if I dwell on that negative and I throw Joseph under the bus because of it, I've missed the whole point. And I think the same thing could be said of Nicodemus. Yes, he was ashamed. Yes, he went by night. He, he was more concerned about what everyone else thought. But I love that in chapter 7, he stands up to the Jews. Verse 50 and 51, when they're debating, who is this man Jesus? Is he good? Is he bad? Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, and said, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? And that's the gold Nicodemus that I want to remember, not the clay Nicodemus that comes by night. This is a very real struggle for all of us. And if you've ever wrestled with the clay and chosen the clay like Balaam did, but now you've had your eyes opened and now you're choosing the gold, may this week's story of Balaam resonate with all of you and continue a determination in all of us to choose the gold. I want to end with what Oliver Cowdery will then write about Joseph's struggle on his way to Cumorah. He will say, You may wonder, perhaps, why the mind of our brother should be occupied with the thoughts of the good of this world at the time of arriving at Camorra, after having been wrapped in the visions of heaven during the night. But the mind of man is easily turned, if it is not held by the power of God through the prayer of faith. And you will remember that I have said that two invisible powers were operating upon his mind during his walk from the residence to Camorra, 
and that the one urging the certainty of wealth and ease in this life had so powerfully wrought upon him that the great object so carefully and impressively named by the angel had entirely gone from his recollection, that only a fixed determination to now obtain urged him forward? In this, do not understand me to attach blame to our brother. He was young, and his mind easily turned from correct principles unless he could be favored with a certain round of experience. This is what life is about, to learn to choose the gold. The Lord allows us those moments of choosing the clay. But in the end, if as we gain experience and we grow, then all those experiences are worth it. Excellent. And so with that, we'll close out this podcast. And we will see you next week when we cover selections from the book of Deuteronomy. Make it a great week. And thanks for sharing your time with us. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.